After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hi, welcome back to Mind Rolling Podcast. I'm Raghu Marcus, and uh, with my erstwhile partner, David Silver. Good morning, David. Good morning. And today we have with us Roshi Joan Halifax. And, um, you know, we're going to, uh, it would be a long list of who Roshi is, for those of you who don't know, as well as the accomplishments but, um, that she has in this lifetime so far. But uh, I want to make it way more simple. I, I've known Roshi uh, s- quite some time, but I didn't really get to know her until a couple of years ago when we ended up together at Ramdas's house. And uh, she, uh, well, bottom line is I fell in love with this <laughs> being, period. And... Uh, we had the most marvelous time together. It was a it was a really kind of wacky time because it was in the midst of uh, Oprah Winfrey coming over to Ramdas's to interview him and all that kind of thing, and, um, and just the uh, so uh, as far as I'm concerned, Roshi, there's some kind of depth in my heart soul uh that goes back with you i just feel uh you know it, it's a deep beyond this lifetime kind of connection and i'm not an astral kind of guy so uh, oh we know that <laughs> so uh roshi uh has a wonderful uh institution um uh in santa fe for many years and it's um upaya institute and Roshi is the uh, Zen abbot, abbotess, is it? Abbot? No. <laughs> <laughs> Raghu, well, okay, it's I'm the Zen it. Center. Okay. And um, uh, I'm the abbot, uh, period. We don't have to make a, a gender problem of it. Just oh, call good, me right. what you wish. All right. And, um, and uh, but uh, Roshi's done a tremendous amount of work in different areas of both uh, social social action, as well as uh, working with uh, uh, death and working with dying people, and uh, hosts and just absolutely incredible people that she works with, uh, many of whom you may know through our podcasts and. It's kind of one big family. Um, just uh, talked to Ro- uh, to uh, Sharon Salzberg yesterday. Oh, wonderful! Yes, and we went over the eightfold path, actually. Uh, and uh, so, uh, Roshi, um, 
I, you know, what we try and do here, there's a couple of things. One thing, you know, we want, we try and make accessible for everybody all of these different traditions and, and uh, teachings so that they are uh, down to a practical, uh, uh, down-to-earth level for people who don't really want to join a Zendo or don't want to join a Buddhist, Hindu um, um, tradition particularly, but want to have balance in their lives and want to be able to act in, in righteous ways and have fulfillment in a way that uh, is uh, purposeful for their lives and for everybody around them. So that is one of the things that we, we try to, to, to share on, on this. And the other thing is sharing, uh, you know, we've shared how it is that we came through our own personal transformations when we were younger. And can you share a little bit uh, with us about how you came up and and the kind of environment that you came through when you were trialed into a teenager into your uh, formative years in your 20s and just what were the things that really um, transformed you into the being that you are now? So, uh, you know, um, I think there were some uh, focus points that are uh, important um, that might touch through to the question that you asked. You know, one is that I was really sick as a child. Mm. And, um, it, you know, it's one of those experiences that uh, a, a child has which is so uh, life-changing, but you don't recognize that your life is changing except in retrospect. And that was, um, I woke up and I couldn't see. Uh, and I was four. And that lasted for a couple of years. So um, this is one of those experiences where I, you know, was turned inward um, for a rather long period of time and discovered I had an inner life as a result of that. And um, also uh, became very used to solitude, um, which has been a practice for me for, you know, my whole life of taking time away from uh, community and friends and public and really uh, dropping inside in order to uh, begin to touch some of the qualities um, that I came became familiar with as a child. So that was, I think, really an important point in my life. Um, another important point was I was taken care of by an Afro-American woman whose mother had been a slave, Ragu. And, mm. um, you know, her own uh, extraordinary spirit really touched me. She had a sense of freedom in a way that nobody that I've ever met has uh, ever uh, exemplified, except maybe our good friend Ramdas. But um, she... Uh, infused me with spirit, even though I was in a fairly uh, fragile state. So um, another thing that was important is I had good parents. You know, I had, I had nice people uh, as my parents. And that was uh, a very important uh, part of my life that um, particularly, you know, um, as I uh, got older, uh, my father seemed to accept me in a very unconditional way. So, um, is that your dog? Yeah. 
Yeah. He's part. They're part of it. It's okay. Yeah. Well, I've got a thing for dogs too. Yes. So you know, those were all things that were important, and so was you know the fact that I was brought up in the South, which was a very racist world, um, and it also had the strength of traditions there, and so um, you know it it was a, a world that um, protected me. Um, but in protecting me, it also uh, exposed me to uh, a kind of bigotry or narrowness that I've uh, worked against the whole, you know, my whole life. Mm. And so, you know, as a result of this and many other factors uh, um, uh, that I probably am not aware of, um, I got very uh, interested in things that were related to lost causes. <laughs> so I, you know, kind of like the queen of lost causes. And, you know, um, I, for example, I was in the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. And, you know, I, I found it uh, incredible when Obama got elected as president, never imagining that I would see um, anyone who was an Afro-American come into the presidency. And, you know, I look at so much of the resistance that he's encountered as part of the unacknowledged racism uh, in our country. Mm. Um, you know, e you know, our financial situation, our economic situations per se, and our, uh, you know, the Health Care Reform Act. And he's done so much good in the world, you know, pulling out of Iraq, pulling out of Afghanistan. But boy, uh, talk about climbing up a mountain of needles. So, you know, as a result of some sort of tendencies in my childhood, I ended up just uh, feeling as though it was important to work for uh, issues related to social justice, environmental justice, and also for those individuals who don't have a voice, which include those who are dying, uh, don't have a voice in our culture, and that includes those who are dying and also for people in our prison system. Mm. Uh People tend to think that, um, quote, spiritual people are, are detached from the worries and tribulations of the world. Obviously, this is not true. And I want you to get a little bit more into, uh, you know, coming from the South and, and being involved with the civil rights movement and what stage you were at, as it were, when you were involved in the social action in terms of your spiritual disciplines and practices. How did the two come together and when, sort of? Well, you know, I was, um, you know, very active in the 60s. So, uh, you know, primarily in the area of social action. But I uh, went to a talk by Alan Watts in the mid-60s and just recognized that, um, gosh, I'm a Buddhist. And then I met uh, Thich Nhat Hanh in 66 because I was at Columbia. And um, I was really moved by his dedication to social action. So I began to read D.T. Suzuki, and then, of course, I was in the anti-war and the civil rights movement and movements, but they were more or less the same thing. We we're all involved in it all. And, um, I, you know, I looked at my own polarization and anger toward our society and recognized that clearly um, uh, there was something that I needed to do with my own heart and mind, and that practice represented that possibility for me. And so, you know... I didn't really um, integrate them until somewhat later, um, but it was kind of like a right hand and a left hand kind of thing. You know, um, 
uh, it wasn't a matter of navel staring. It was a matter of training my own mind so I wasn't so incredibly reactive on one hand. And on the other hand, it was a matter from my point of view of, um, you know, staying as uh, socially engaged as possible while at the same time becoming, uh, you know, involved in practice and not seeing them as one or two, not one, not two, but um, as seeing them as really um, uh, integrated or two sides of the same coin. Roshi, we did a thing yesterday, a, a podcast, uh, where we actually... Um, we had people uh, live asking us questions. It was kind of a new format that we were putting together. And one question um, from somebody who obviously, in general, distress about the world as it is today, just waking up and thinking about all of, uh, I don't know what their work is or anything, if they have any direct in involvement with you know with some of the suffering that is going on. But it was the question was we wake I wake up in the morning and all of the sufferings in the different parts of the world just come flooding into me and I I am in this devastated moment of not almost not being able to to function I don't know how to carry on my my own life in the midst of this kind of suffering what do I do about it so. What can you say to somebody like this? Well, you know, I was saying that I think today um, many people face uh, moral dilemmas that precipitate a moral crisis, great moral distress. And um, as a result of that, it, you know, motivates them to action. Um, but also it can um, be extremely oppressive. Uh, we can collapse under the weight of... Uh, of uh, conditions that seem to violate um, a strong, you know, ethical orientation. And what's really important is to um, have a perspective on this, uh, the experience of, you know, greed, hatred, and delusion, um, you know, the fundamental primers of uh, suffering um, that exist within all of us, whether it's um, the perpetrators of suffering or the recipients of suffering. And to um, understand that compassion can be actualized, you know, in conditions such as this, understanding that, um, or having the realization um, that um, fundamentally, uh, for example, uh, the men that I worked with who murdered other people, th these were uh, states of mind that were qualified by suffering. And, of course, the victims suffered. And, of course, the family members and friends suffered. So that's, you know, an example. Or, um, you know, school shootings. You know, we uh, look at these young people who are shooting others. And, um, you know, the usual characterization is uh, of, uh, you know, kind of evilness. Um, but in fact, these young people are really suffering in a very fundamental way. <clears throat> so um, the fact that so many people are uh, in states of moral distress is not surprising, uh, since we live in communities that are not well-grounded, um, not coherent, not congruent, and that we also... Uh, you know, our, many of us are, have become so uh, 
adversely sensitized um, to violence, mm -hmm. that um, just having another teaspoon of violence or gallon of violence or swimming pool of violence or ocean of violence coming our way, it just drowns us. And that's why, you know, basically I began my own practice because it was um, so difficult for me to sustain uh, buoyancy, fundamental buoyancy in the world. Um, because I just felt the ills of the world so deeply. Mm. And, of course, you know, feeling that, I wanted to do something on one hand, but feeling it, um, sometimes I felt paralyzed on the other. So, you know, to the person who just feels like they can hardly get out of bed in the morning, I can understand. Um, sometimes it's important just to heap, just to collapse, to let the inner process unfold. But sometimes it's really important to reach through to others and to understand that you have resources in relationship or in terms of moments of your life which have been edifying. Yeah, as I said, Raghu and David, it's um, really a matter of uh, person to person. Hmm. Uh, it's not so much for me a matter of, you know, this is how you do it. You know, there's a secret pill that makes you better. No, there's no pill, there's no practice. It's many factors that combine to give you the wherewithal to face the suffering in the world. Hmm. But you do talk about training. You mentioned training earlier, training uh, in your own uh, life, training, mind training. Uh, and we do, David and I, you know, we do reference people who ask, what are the things that we can do? Just basic things so that we are not so caught up in our minds and emotions and so on. And, and we always say, well, there is a necessity for a basic uh, meditation practice, a practice where, uh, and, and we usually do suggest, you know, we turn them over to, uh, you know, Vipassana because that's the most experience that we've had uh, that's been the most effective thing. But is, what other... Uh, including that, what other um, path would you suggest to people just on, a, on their day-to-day -day basis to be able to have some leverage, um, just a crack so that, uh, by which there's a, a light coming through? Uh, so, you know, <clears throat> I think there are many training paths. There's the, you know, the bhakti training path that's very much in the heart of what Ramdas does, which is, uh, you know, the cultivation of love and kindness and pro-sociality and um, gentleness and connectedness. And, you know, it's really like nurturing um, those systems within one mm. that um, relate to uh, each other, um, to the divine. So, you know, that's a path that I think is really uh, so important for many people. Um, from, you know, the point of view of my own practice, um, uh, developing really stable attention is essential, mm. uh, which, you know, in the Vipassana world, it's shamatha. Um, in Zen, we, have, we do it our own way, Swisokan, or attending to the breath and being uh, uh, attentive to what we do uh, moment by moment. So that's a really important stream. It's one, though, of, of a number of streams, including um, the path of insight. And this is what Shikantaza does. It brings 
the path of concentration and the path of insight together in just this moment. So that's a, you know that's a very powerful uh, endeavor um, to uh, work with not only attention but also awareness and wisdom, uh, awareness and insight. And then another, which um, you know the Vipassana world relates to, and we also in Zen, and of course the world of Ramdas, and uh, it, that has to develop has to do with the cultivation of bodhicitta of an awakened heart, a heart that um, really wants to end the suffering of other beings and to understand that this practice that we're doing is unselfish. It's directed toward uh, the benefit of others. So that cultivation of bodhicitta, the awakened heart, um, is something that various traditions share, certainly Zen, uh, the Vajrayana tradition, the Vipassana tradition, um, and it's practice of loving kindness and um, also what Ramdas does. And these are all training uh, dimensions. In other words, there's the mind is much more plastic, much more pliable than uh, most of us understand that we can actually change the neural networks um, mm -hmm. simply by, uh, just like you learn how to play scales, by doing attention practice or practicing in uh, the cultivation of uh, pro-social or loving-kindness, uh, mm -hmm. uh, the experience of loving-kindness or pro-sociality, you know, really uh, about being um, with others in the world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So practice is essential, and it's not something you can just do like, oh, I'm going to, you know, go to Maui or to Insight Meditation or to Upaya Zen Center once a year. I'll get my fix, and then I'm good for the rest of the year. Those fixes are important. They're inspiring. They remind you of who you really are. But it's the daily process of actualizing your practice in your everyday life. Hmm. In, point of, in point of fact on that... I just got off the phone half an hour ago with a group of people who are tending to a, a close friend of mine who's um, being taken off various dialysis and life support and so forth. About three months ago, six months ago, I don't know, I he started going to the Westchester Buddhist uh, Society, I think it's called, with Trungpa people who uh, teach. And he became quite entranced by that, thank God. And it was great, you know, because he'd had no no background in that whatsoever. But now that they've decided that he cannot get a transplant and so forth, uh, he's become incredibly agitated and terrified. And the f call I just had was extraordinarily difficult because uh, mm. all of us are trying to say things, words, um, but I have great compassion for his state uh, because I don't know what state I'm going to be in in that condition. I can't make a right. difference. And I know you don't know him, and, you, and it's, it's so individuated. But I would actually like some advice from you about myself on this, because I am struggling with words, uh, talking about his body being a vehicle, it's, it's no longer working, you will pass, all things pass, and so on. But the words seem so empty and so privileged in a way. You know, I'm not in that condition. I'm talking to him, and he is, and he's in physical pain as well. Is there anything you can... I know you've done incredible work on death and dying. I know there's no fix here, but how... What, what are some of the techniques that might help me deal with my friend? 
Well, I think the most important thing is to have the um, capacity to be really present. You know, I think that having words that are kind of canned or something is not, you know, usually very helpful. It's like almost a weird um, uh, thing to, you know, have this um, set uh, process that you're going to enter into. But it's more about being with not knowing and then bearing witness and then to... Um, uh, out of not knowing and bearing witness to um, uh, engage in a, in, in a way that is fundamentally compassionate or fundamentally unselfish and selfless. Um, you know, a lot of times we use words to defend ourselves. And I, you know, I appreciate that they're, they're very helpful. I love words myself. But often the words ring kind of hollow, and it's at a deeper level of relationship that we're called. Mm, yes, I, that's very helpful, actually. Thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, I wanted to go off that subject for a moment, because I'm looking at Wikipedia, which I shamelessly did about you, I was, uh, there was one thing that really struck out that, that was sort of um, counterintuitive to me, but I'm sure it isn't. Uh, Alan Lomax, those, that man, who I, yeah. have, I have such a deep feeling for because I've worked with so many people who probably wouldn't be rock stars or anything if it weren't for his work. Uh -huh. and, and I didn't know you'd worked with him. And I, I wanted you to talk about that, about the, maybe the connection between uh, civil rights work and Alan's unique contribution to the, the, uh, to the communication of a culture, an entire American culture? Well, I met Alan in 1964 at uh, the Newport Folk Festival, and he and I really jibed, and we became close friends, and um, I ended up actually working for him on his cantometrics and choreometrics project. Um, and also, I actually lived in the same apartment with him and John Henry Falk, who was his close friend from Austin, Texas. Anyway, that's old, old history. It's pretty outrageous. It's part of my past. <laughs> um, but, you know, Alan um, and Alan and I collect folk music together, and uh, I filmed for Alan uh, in uh, North Africa and Spain and in the West Indies. And it was just a, a great um, experience working with him. Um, you know, he was one of these uh, geniuses, also kind of, uh, in a way, um, self-taught. Um, in, in another way, following in the footsteps of his father, John A. Lomax, who's, you know, set up the folk music archive at the Library of Congress. And it was funny because I had an appointment at the Library of Congress a few years ago and uh, was invited, of course, to go into the archive, and I saw some of my own handwritten notes, you know, <laughs> from the 60s in the archives. But Alan, you know, Alan was very much uh, uh, kind of a very much radical person, and um, he was a deeply dedicated social activist, and he worked uh, diligently for, um, you know, the, the rights of others. And um, it, he was just a remarkable human being, uh, you know, cranky, brilliant, uh, driven, 
uh, inspired. Um, anyway, uh, what can I say? Um, uh, you know, it was a big part of my life. Uh, I worked for Alan for uh, four and a half years. Hmm. And, you know, it, I worked not just nine to five. You know, I'd get in the office at seven and work until late at night. And, um, you know, I had the chance through Alan to meet all kinds of extraordinary people, whether it was uh, the O'Gallagher's or uh, um, Bama, you know, from Parchment Prison or, you know, all these just amazing people. And throughout, um, you know, we went to the Pentagon together. We walked down Fifth Avenue in the Great Peace March together in the mid-60s. Um, you know, it was just, he was probably one of the most important people in my life because I met him when I was 21. And so, you know, I was just this you know, wide open, energetic young person involved in the civil rights movement from the South. We, you know, shared views and values in common. And he was a bridge into a world that I really uh, felt, uh, what could I say? You know, um, I got to live out uh, my dreams in the, the deepest way possible um, through his friendship. Mm. Mm. I didn't know any of that, Roshi. That's uh, see, well, it's good. Know. David looked up Wikipedia there for that. That was yeah. That's all right, huh? Oh God. <laughs> well, you know, because music, we have done a lot of work together over many, many years. Uh, we worked together in the music business and a lot of the, uh, you know, the label that we had, Triloka, and uh, and music. When we talked about our own transformation in the early years, music was a definitive part of that transformation for each of us individually, David and I. Uh -huh. we're, and we both come, you know, he comes from England, I come from Canada. We were kind of, uh, the, the immigrants came to America and uh, got, uh, you know, got our transformations here. And, uh, of course, with the work that Alan did, really, uh, we, we are very, very familiar with that work. And, uh, and all of that has a deep effect on us and who we are today as individuals. Uh, no. so, I, we are, so that's another connection to you that I didn't even know about. So that's like, so funny. Thrilled. Yeah, it's so great. And um, by the way, people out there, we're, we're not going to take too much more of uh, Roshi's time, uh, but uh, any of you who are interested at all in Zen and Buddhist practice and way beyond that, because uh, Roshi is the most well-rounded human uh, in these areas that I know on the planet, and uh, please go take advantage and uh, look up um, Upaya. What's the web? Oh, give me the web. It's www.upaya.zencenter, or is it upaya.org? Let me look it up. I yeah, don't know. No, I think it's upaya.org, I think, but you look it I, up while we're... While I'll, I'll look it up right now. It's upaya.org. Yeah. You're right. Yeah, okay. and it's upaya.org. Also, uh, Roshi herself does wonderful podcasts uh, from talks not just from her, but from other teachers who visit Upaya and teach there. And uh, you can find that through the site as well. And Roshi has written, written some uh, fantastic books, uh, and certainly around this topic that David asked this particular question around uh, his friend who's dying. Uh, Roshi has, uh, there's a, more than one book that you can find. Uh, go to Amazon and just Roshi Joan Halifax, and uh, you will 
find these books uh, readily available. And just a little bit of our own ad, sorry, Roshi, but go through mindrollingpodcast.com and go through our Amazon portal. And when you buy Roshi's book, we'll get a little, a few little shekels uh, because you went to Amazon. It costs you no more or no less, but it helps support what we're doing. So we appreciate that. Oh, wonderful. Well, it's just such a beautiful um, thing for me to be in relationship with you and Sarasvati and now David and, um, you know, the whole sort of Ramdas Mandala. And I'm very <laughs> excited that next May we'll all be together. Oh, this is the first thing. We're going to announce this right now. Nobody knows about this, Roshi. Are you kidding? Nobody knows. I mean, just ah, the people in... Krishna Das and me and you and Ram Das. It's yep. going to be fantastic. And so it's going to be April 29th through May 4th, I believe. You, It will be up on ramdas.org. And, of course, uh, Roshi will be announcing it as well, probably towards the end of the summer. Uh, so uh, get your, you know, get yourself ready for this because... Uh, now, Roshi, when I first... I'll just tell this one little thing, okay, Roshi? Okay. When I first met Roshi in Santa Fe many, many, many years ago, she uh, she scared me. She came into a room and she was very forcefully saying something to somebody. Uh, I had nothing even to do with it. I, I was part of the organizing of this event that she was participating in with Ramdas at the time. And um, and so I always had this thing. Oh my God, this is one. This is a fierce Zen master. Oh and, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I had this impression. And then we happened. You know, over the years, though. You know, I of course through Ramdas knew about Roshi and bumped into her a couple other times, and it was all benign. But it was that moment that we were together in Ramdas's house where this whole love blossomed in me and mm. dispelled this other. Uh, thing, whatever I had in my consciousness. And then Roshi did a uh, a retreat with Ramdas this couple of years ago, uh, and uh, or a year and a half. And uh, n- nobody who comes from this tradition can do what she does. Okay, everybody out there? That's why I'm suggesting you bump into her, because the combination of uh, wisdom and love and presence is rare. And, uh, you know, I, I just have to say that. And my appreciation for you is, is, uh, uh, has no boundaries. And so I'm so happy that you uh, were able to spend this little bit of time with us, Roshi. Well, it is my honor, my pleasure, and my joy. And I just, you know, love interacting with you, my dear Raghu. It's great having time with you, David. How nice you discovered that little part of my life. Yeah. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. We, uh, by the way, we, in terms of discovering more parts, we want to sit with you again when you have time at some other point. Right. And, dis- and, and have a little bit more. To, I mean, because you uh, are a wealth of podcasting material. Well, okay, so we'll do it later. Goodbye, everybody. Have a fantastic day. May you enjoy your practice, and thank you for your practice. Thank Thank you, you, Roshi. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Bye-bye.